Hello, everyone. It's nice to see you. Um, it's our third Sunday in Lent, and I wondered, um, this is my anecdotal evidence is that no one's given anything up for Lent. So can you give me a wave if, if you've actually given anything up for Lent, other than things you had to give up for lockdown? There's a few. There's a few of you hardy souls. Well done. Well done. I'd say you're nearly there, but you're not. Keep going. Well done. <laughs> Be encouraged. Um, so as we've begun to mark this season of Lent in Trinity, uh, one of the, what, what, we've been, what we've been aiming for, what, we're, what we desire from the Lord is to see the hope in Jesus more clearly. We want to see the hope that's in Jesus for us more clearly. And you know, Lent, we remember Jesus going into the wilderness and it's been a bit of a wilderness time and we're actually in really good company. Christians have been going into the desert on purpose for centuries to seek a fuller encounter with God's grace. A fuller encounter with God's grace. Uh, one in particular, um, Anthony, Anthony the Great. Um, he's known as the father of all the monks. And he goes into the desert to seek a fuller experience of God's grace. And when he's there, he ends up wrestling with demons. And I think when we end up in the wilderness, very often we can end up wrestling with our own demons. And so... I'm encouraged this morning to know that we don't serve a weak God, a God who is too diffident to make a difference. We serve a God who's got opinions. I've got a six-month-old who increasingly has opinions, but we serve a God who has got opinions. And if you didn't know that when you walked in this morning, I think you do now after that reading, right? We met Jesus this morning in a different mode than we sometimes encounter him. It wasn't eight pounds, six ounce, baby Jesus. Don't even know a word yet, but still omnipotent. It wasn't even Christ crucified, beaten and bloodied. It was angry Jesus this morning. Angry Jesus. I don't know about you, but I don't often spend time in the company of angry Jesus. So this is exciting. What happens in the passage? Jesus comes into the temple at a moment of celebration. The celebration of the Passover. What does this mean? It means Jerusalem's packed. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing about 30 years after Jesus, reckons there are 3 million people in Jerusalem. And even if we allow for a little bit of exaggeration on Josephus's part, that's a lot of people. They're all crammed together. You can smell the person next to you. I read a lot of kids' Bible stories at the moment, and what they would say is, your bum is in my face. People are close together, right? Do you remember that? It's like the orchard video. It's, what, it's how we used to live, right? When people didn't give you a two-meter berth, as a matter of course. Even if you did smell, apparently. Uh, anyway, they're crammed into a space that's too small for this number. They're jostling with each other. And they're all there to celebrate God's astonishing grace. This moment par excellence when God delivers his people, the liberation which God brought to his people in Passover. But when Jesus walks into the temple, he gets angry. Angry enough to cause a scene. Imagine what this was like. It's like going down to the Christmas market in Market Square and just starting to destroy stuff. Right? That's what's happening here. It's packed. There are crowds. And Jesus starts flipping tables. 
He's angry enough to cause a scene. And why? Everywhere he looks, he sees transaction. The transactions of the money changers who will gladly relieve you of your Roman coins, which is what you need in literally every other shop apart from the temple. And they'll give you this clean money. How often is money ever clean? Let's leave that there. They'll give you temple shekels, right? And I'll, I'll, I'll trade you your Roman coins for my temple shekels. And then my good friend over here will gladly give you a dove at a very reasonable price. Everywhere Jesus looks, the economic has encroached on the arena of encounter. A dose of God is being weighed out and priced up. Yahweh himself has given the gift of his presence in the temple, and they've set up a toll booth. Sacrifice. This sacrificial system, it began with encounter. It began with an encounter with God. It began as devotion to God, but it's become business. It's become business as usual. The holy, awesome God has been reduced to a business transaction. And isn't this always the danger for us religious people? We come to church for our weekly dose of grace before we go back to the business of living. What is it that stirs up Jesus' anger? It's an uncomfortable story because it's worship. It's coming to God like he's a tame lion who owes us a roar or two on a Sunday morning. Like he should be grateful that we spared him this time. It's coming to God like it's his job to make me feel better because I tried really hard to be good or at least, you know, not too bad. I gave something up for Lent during COVID, right? The least you can do is make me feel better. Why is Jesus outraged? Because that's not who God is. That is not who God is. God's bigger than that. God's better than that. And he does not fit in that box. We can even see this attitude in the response to Jesus which isn't flat-out rejection, interestingly enough. The Jews in this passage, they ask for a sign. Isn't that so often our way? (laughs) When the living God starts to say and do things that I don't expect, that I'm not comfortable with, when he makes unrealistic demands like, love your enemies, or says things that don't sit well with my ethical or political or moral or social or insert other category here when they don't sit with my perspective or they push my life in a totally different trajectory than I'd planned, start to ask questions of my own. Jesus, you want to disrupt everything? Well, I would like to see your credentials. Prove to me that you're trustworthy. Prove that what you're demanding is good for me. What's happening here? Who's in charge here? They're trying to take back control. And this is ultimately where transactional worship ends up. We want to secure ourselves, even and up to worshipping an idol instead of the God of the Bible. John Calvin, who was one of the great thinkers of the Reformation, he puts it this way. He says, human nature, so to speak, is a perpetual 
factory of idols. If you're a human, John Calvin's talking about you. (laughs) Human nature is a perpetual factory of idols. It's what we're doing all the time. The human mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, imagine the boldness of inventing your own God, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. A God according to its own capacity. Your idol will never be bigger than you. God made humans in his image, and you and I continually try to return the favor. Isn't this tragic? An idol's not going to save you. One of the leading psychotherapists of his generation, Dr. Elvin Semrad, which is just a wonderful name to say, um, he used to impress upon his students that the greatest sources of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. The greatest sources of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. Nowhere is this more true than in theology. Nowhere is this more true than when we're thinking about God. This is what Jesus is going after. It's what he's going after in this passage and what he's, what he's coming after this morning, I believe. God is bigger than your biggest understanding of him. God is better than you will ever know. So what's happening for us today? Why this passage? Jesus wants to turn the tables in all the places you've traded the wildness of the infinite for an attempt at securing yourself. Jesus wants to turn the table in all the places where we've settled for less than the full goodness of who God actually is. You might not, you might not think this is for you because, after all, you're into relationship with Jesus, not religion. And who on earth would knowingly follow a tin pot deity that they set up themselves rather than, rather than loving the living God? So I want to say this morning that you can end up in this place out of sheer perseverance. You can accidentally end up here simply because you were trying to persist. Right? How do I know this? Look at the Jews in this passage. They've been waiting for a Messiah for centuries. And they can't see the grace of God when it arrives in their midst. Look at the church in Ephesus. In Revelation 2, what's the letter to the church in Ephesus say? It says, you've done so well. You've clung on to Christ in the face of intense opposition. Your knuckles have been white, and yet you have resisted and persisted. Well done. I hold this against you. You've forgotten your first love. Your ardor has cooled and hardened. It's possible to end up here out of persistence. And this year has taken a lot of persistence, at least for me, if not for you. So this is a message for us today, I believe. The hope, though, that Jesus offers us is that he responds to this request for a sign. There's not a flat-out rejection of Jesus, and there isn't a rejection of the people. The people ask for a sign, and Jesus gives them one. It's his death and his resurrection. He doesn't leave us helpless. The sign that he gives us is his death and resurrection. 
in the wilderness, in the stripping, in the chaos, in the carnage, in everything that is deathly about our lives, that's where Jesus comes to show who God really is. That's where Jesus comes to show who God really is. You can't box it to a Sunday morning. God stands over and against our expectations of him. He's holy and wholly other. This God is awesome in the truest sense of that word. And that means it's a little bit scary. It's easier to roll our eyes about some idealist and write the tables. Pick up all the coins, try and catch the doves before they fly off, that kind of thing. But the promise of Jesus is that he's better, that God is better than our idols. And more than that, that he's better for you, for you than you have yet realized. This is good news this morning. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Um, There's quite a long quote coming. Chance to exercise your eyes, do some reading. Um, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. They had been smelling. And stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently... He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here. Putting on an extra floor there. Running up towers. Making courtyards. It's extravagant. It's excessive. It's better than the house you would buy for yourself. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live there himself. He intends to come and live there himself. You know when the disciples are thinking back on Jesus' life and they get to this episode and they try to pick the bones out of it, what they eventually realize and then write down for us so that you know, it takes us less time than it took them is that it's an excess of zeal that causes Jesus to act in this way. It's zeal for his father's house. It's, it's a passion for the house of God that causes Jesus to act. He's knocking walls about because he's more passionate about his church than you or I. He's more passionate about his church than you or I. He cares more about this church being on fire than any of us. He cares more about this church being a beacon of hope to the people around it, being set on fire in order that the warmth and the light that our God's love are visible to other people. He cares more about that than we do. He's putting an extra floor into your life because he cares more about who you're becoming than you do. C.S. Lewis again, it all seems to us unnecessary, but that is because we have not had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. And it's necessary 
because sin is so destructive. And we know this, don't we? A wise friend of mine used to say, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go and cost you more than you wanted to pay. And the New Testament, more often than not, speaks about sin as a power. And the evidence of our experience agrees. The evidence of my experience agrees, at least. Sin is something which has its own force. You can be fully aware that what you're doing is self-destructive, and yet your heart be captive. And this is precisely why we need a strong God. When we find ourselves in a wilderness wrestling with demons, it's God's gift that he is not a weak God. It's God's gift that he's not too diffident to make a difference. It's God's gift that he judges sin in us. It's Jesus' zeal. It's God's grace being outpoured in Jesus that turns the tables over and speaks a word of judgment even in our worship. We need a powerful God to judge and condemn sin, not an idea to make us feel better so that we can cope with the effects of sin in us. We don't need a coping mechanism. We need a God. We need the living God. God's judgment is something that actually we long for. It's something that we crave. This is why it's such a gift that Jesus arrives outraged in the temple to show what's wrong. But what does judgment look like? As I come towards the end, we're going to, we're going to head for a moment of confession in a minute. But I want, to, I want before that to talk about what God does with sin. Because this Jesus turning tables over in the temple is all about, it's all about judgment. And that's not always our favorite place to go. So as we prepare our hearts to go back to where we've already been this morning, into a moment of surrender, just want to talk about what God actually does with sin, what it looks like for God to judge. So there are three things that I want to highlight to, to you this morning, want to suggest to you this morning. What does God do with sin? First, he meets us in it. He meets us in it. If you're asking me, and I'm still at the pulpit, so you are, um, if you're asking me, the most astonishing verse in the whole, in the whole of the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, He became sin that knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. What happens in this verse? God, in Jesus, goes to the place which is by definition not God. God goes to un-God. God goes to the place where God is not allowed. Why? For the sake of you. For the sake of meeting you there. What does God do with sin? He meets us in it. That's why you can't keep him on a Sunday morning. He's interested in being in the grubby little moments. He's interested in being in the fear. He's interested in being in the places, in the moments where you feel most broken. He's interested in being in the moments where what you really want to pray is, God, don't look at me right now because I can't cope with you being here. Jesus wants to be there. Jesus is committed to you there. 
That's why he speaks a word of judgment over our worship, because he's not content to stay here. This is what God does with sin. He meets us in it. Jesus became sin. Um, He came to the one place which is necessarily remote from God to encounter us. So God enters into sin. Second thing, God destroys sin. The sign that Jesus gives is his death and resurrection. When Jesus goes to the cross, he takes sin with him. He triumphs over sin and death and he robs them of their power. Jesus doesn't just want to be in that moment so that you've got a friend. Jesus wants to be in that moment to liberate you. And that brings me to my third point. Let me not steal my own points. Um, God enters into our sin. He encounters us there. He destroys it. And what does he do with us? With us sinners. Forgives. This is what God does with sin. This is what God's judgment actually looks like. He enters in. He destroys sin. And he forgives us. He liberates you and me, to live Christ's life. He gives us the capacity to put on Christ. He judges sin and puts it to death so that you can actually live the life that God intended to you, which is Christ. He frees sinners. He forgives them. This is good news. This is the good news. God Almighty, the God who's dreamed for you a palace rather than a cottage. The wild, infinite God who can't be tamed, who can't be transacted, that God wants to free you from sin. That's why this is not a try-harder message. The resources of your own transformation are not within you. You can't purchase a modicum of comfort by trading Roman coins for shekels to buy a dove to show your love to a deity. You can't even gain a quantum of solace by trading a Sunday morning for a feel-good message. Thank God! You cannot secure yourself. But you can come in the wilderness of Lent and hand yourself back over to the wildness of the infinite, to a God who loves you. So I'm just going to invite the the worship team back up. And we're going to take a moment to surrender ourselves again to this God. We're going to take a moment to surrender ourselves again to this God. This God who speaks, who speaks a word of judgment over our worship, over our lives. This God who cares enough to enter into our sin, to liberate us from it. This God is better than you've ever believed. This Jesus gave himself for you. And his spirit is here to convict this morning. I don't need to tell you what your sin is because as Johnny read in the final few verses, Jesus already knows what's in each of our hearts and Jesus already knows where where it's appropriate for him to speak a word of judgment in your life this morning.
So let's pause for a moment as the band begins to play and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to speak to you, to speak to me about where in our lives we've settled for less than our gracious God has for us. We're going to give this a few minutes. You might like to adopt a posture of surrender. You might like to kneel. It might be hands open. Whatever it is for you this morning, whatever it is that marks you as open to God's work this morning, we're going to give this a few minutes and then I'm going to lead us in a confession. We're going to present ourselves to God with the words of that confession. So take, take a few minutes. Thank you. 
this moment. In this moment, I wonder if there's a. I wonder if the Holy Spirit wants to speak to some people about particular things. One thing that came to mind was this sense of when you pray, when you pray to God, you can believe a lot for other people, but when you pray to Him for yourself. You're constantly looking for ways to be the answer to your own prayer. My sense is that God God doesn't need you to be the answer to your own prayer. God needs you to be his beloved child. To trust that his goodness is for you as well as for all the other people. I pray you'd convince us of your kindness. that you make yourself present that you do it for our sake and that you don't leave us in our sin that you don't treat us as our sins deserve still in a moment with the Lord, stay there, that's fine. We're going to say a confession together. And the purpose of this is not to become introspective and to examine ourselves for any hints of sins that we forgot about. The purpose of this is to use these words to bring the whole of our lives before God. It's a way of us climbing back on the altar and offering our lives as a living sacrifice. It's going to come up on the screens. I'm going to read the white bits and the orange bits. I'd love it if you'd join in. (sighs) 
Holy God, you draw us into the quietness of the desert so that we can encounter you and see ourselves clearly. We confess that all too often we stubbornly cling to things that limit us rather than face the necessity of change. You call us to put down the habits that structure our lives so that we can discover what really matters. We confess that all too often we continue to choose our own comfort rather than serving the needs of others. Forgive us, O oh God, wherever we have chosen to be or do or dare less than you have asked of us. And as we walk on in the desert with you, help us watch and wrestle with these things so that we might choose differently in future. Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon us, pardon and deliver us from all our sins and from sin's power. Confirm and strengthen us in all goodness and keep us in life eternal through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.